you know, you're like, well, this is straightforward. This is very obvious, not a big issue. And then suddenly more and more started coming in. I was thinking, okay, something's, I've never seen a kennel cough outbreak like this. And then, you know, a few days later, we started to have the first neurological case come in. And I thought, oof, okay. And then it was a storm for about six weeks. Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. On today's show, we have the pleasure of being in the company of Dr. Ben Howitt. Ben is the founder and managing director of Pan Animalia Galapagos and is an international veterinary manager with a worldwide veterinary service. He was brought up in Singapore and studied at the University of Bristol Veterinary School in the United Kingdom. Following graduation, he spent three years in mixed clinical practice on the Channel Island of Guernsey before moving to the Galapagos Islands to manage a volunteer and charitable veterinary clinic run by a US charity. Completing this work in 2019, he returned to the UK to start his own foundation called Pan Animalia and subsequently teamed up with Worldwide Vet Services as one of their project managers. Pan Animalia's mission is to conserve endemic wildlife populations in the Galapagos Islands by preventing competition, predation and infectious disease transmission from domestic animal populations. This in part means working to educate local communities but also setting up local population control systems and preventive vaccination programs. The foundation is doing terrific work and in the past year since opening has completed more than 700 surgeries, attended more than 1,300 animals, hosted 32 students and volunteers, visited eight local schools and created one awesome team. In 2020, his efforts and ambition were recognised as he was nominated for the British Veterinary Association's Young Vet of the Year Award. Now, before we jump into today's episode, a quick word from the show sponsor. Introducing the Vet Career Concierge, the easy way to find your dream job. It's a brilliantly simple concept. Instead of wasting time searching through thousands of practice jobs that might be a good fit but probably aren't, let the Career Concierge do the hard work for you. All you have to do is register, tell us about your skills and what you're looking for from your next practice. Then your concierge goes to work filtering, matching and approaching only practices that are actually a good fit. If you like the sound of a practice and want to meet, the concierge will coach you through the interview process, help with negotiations and work to ensure you have a smooth transition into practice when you accept the role. They'll even stay in touch with scheduled career check-ins to make sure you're happy. The service is open to vets and vet nurses with at least a year of experience in practice and are legally able to work in the US, Canada, UK, EU or Australia. To register, visit vetxinternational.com forward slash career concierge and all applicants will be entered into a prize draw where you could win an apple watch a magnum of champagne or amazon gift card registration is free so head to vedexinternational.com forward slash career concierge to sign up today now back to the show ben has been on my instagram radar for ages as we both share a passion for animals in the ocean but due to our (laughs) seemingly outstanding efforts at not being in even close to compatible time zones it literally took about two years to get this interview arranged i've not had a lot of guests from the world of concierge so it really was great to hear about Ben's passion for conserving utterly essential ecosystems and the work he's doing to help protect an area made most famous by Charles Darwin himself. So without further ado, sit back and enjoy this conversation with vet conservationist Dr. Ben Howitt. So welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection. I am joined today by somebody like we've been trying to get this episode happening for a long while, time zones, internet connection, various states of submersion, I suspect have gotten in the way along the way, more on that to come. But Ben Howitt, welcome at long last to the <laughs> Thanks, show. Thanks, Yeah, no, it's really good to finally get this going. 
And uh, yeah, what a privilege, to be honest, to join you on this. So yeah, thank you. Well, you might not say that as we get to afterwards. You never know. We'll see how it goes. Ben, I would say that of all the guests that I've had on the show, I think, and my guests, so I get lots of, I'll tell you a little backstory to this, first of all. To become a guest on the show, generally, you just have to pop up on my radars doing, like, ooh, that's interesting. And loads of people, like media companies now send lots of people who just want to promote their business and they're not doing stuff that's terribly interesting. They're just rolling up practices or blah, blah, boring, boring, boring. So they never get on the show. So media <laughs> listeners, if you're listening to it and send me that, please don't send me that. You will not get on the show. Just have interesting people doing cool stuff and I'll find you eventually. Or if you're listening and you know somebody's interesting doing cool stuff and you're not a media agency, tell their story to me and you can also get on the show. So... Ben, I've been following on Instagram for some time for the simple reason, Ben, that I think out of all the people that I follow on Instagram and I've interviewed, I think I've got the most job envy of your job. Like, I don't want to sound like too much of a fanboy, but I sort of wish that I was you. (laughs) (laughs) It grows cooler beard, but I look at your page and I'm like, God damn it. Like, if I'd have done a different career, that's... It's terrific the way it's been a bit of a whirlwind. I'll give you that, yeah. But (laughs) so I think it's probably having given you the big setup like that, probably better explain what you do. Yeah, of course. I mean, it depends how far back you want to start. Let's start present day, and then I'm going to take it back for sure. So So, um, currently, I'm uh, title is uh, international veterinary manager for WVS, the Worldwide Veterinary Service, and uh, working pretty much uh, within South America predominantly at the moment. I set up a charity, my own charity, about three years ago now called Pan Animalia, um, opening effectively a veterinary facility on the Galapagos Islands. So I, after I spent about three years in clinical practice, I went out to the Galapagos and I lived there for about a year, just under a year. I was working with an American charity. And when they closed their doors, I thought this would be a good opportunity to start up something new. So I started up Pan and Amalia as a UK foundation, and then uh, that brought it on board with WVS, and uh, and we're managing it overall through a big collective team now, So, um, which is much more fun. I'm going to direct people just now to Ben's Instagram, which is bovhowit, so B-O-V-H-O-W-I-T-T, and... Like, it's particularly my envy is bad when you're posting sea creatures and diving photos and stuff like that. But, you know, that's that's where I'm... It's like, a snapshot. It's a snapshot, so, Dave. Well, uh, <laughs> as all Instagram is, isn't it? It's, uh, but when I'm looking out at the, the English channel behind me and the, oh, it's just been horrible for weeks and it's beautiful. It's flat now, but it's, it's too cold. I just can't <laughs> conceive of getting in it right now. It's like muddy water where you can't see the end of your fingers when you've got your elbow bent and it's freezing compared to, you know, tropical waters, just and phenomenal animals, but it's kind of awesome. So we're going to dig into, I think each of those things, you mentioned WVS, you've got your Galapagos Animal Charity, and I, I really want to dig into the work you're doing with conservation and, and particularly, you know, the connection to the ocean. That's actually one of the things that comes across strongly from your work. There's a connection to education. There's a connection to community. There's a connection to the ocean. I'd really like to dig into those three things a little bit more, if indeed you would agree that those three things are accurate. Yeah, absolutely. But 
I want to take it back first to like veterinary medicine. What was your route in? Like, why did you end up in and, you know, who were your influences along the way? Yeah, so I was actually brought up in uh, Singapore. So I was in Singapore for a good uh, 15 years. So I graduated and then that's only the time really I came back to the UK for education at, at Bristol University. And we were always quite a big seafaring family. We used to spend every summer down at the Isles of Scilly with diggies and boats and sailing and the like. So the sea always was very close to a lot of our family identity and was it's something that you can't take out of any of us, uh, myself included. So any area that I can combine with my career with the sea, you know, I'd jump at it, to be honest. And if not, I'd still be in it quite frequently where I can. I'm a little bit like you, though, as well. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the cold water. I've been... Uh, I uh, had a, a lot of, what's the word, luxury with warmer water throughout my childhood and, and the likes, but uh, it won't stop me getting in it if I just have a thicker wetsuit. <laughs> I'm feeling that. It's, you're talking about the Isles of Scilly, and you know, it's, it just brings me the old adage of sailing in Britain. Equivalent experience, if anyone fancies trying it, is standing under a cold shower ripping up 50s. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, quite miserable. You have siblings. Like, how big is your family? You mentioned like it's quite. Yeah, so I just I've got a sister. So we're not a big family. There's uh, there's the dusty siblings and um, and the likes. But um, but yeah, so it's but we're very close knit. We've uh, spent a lot of our last well, my last thirty years all in different continents at various points. But we've remained very very close, and I think a lot of that is down to our childhood. To be honest. Could you dig into that a little more? Is there, at the risk of turning it into a therapy session, but sometimes no. the blunt dissection goes <laughs> there, but I'm always interested in the formative, the formative experiences that bring people into, into this world of veterinary medicine and where those roots are. So, yeah, of course. I mean, we're a very, very close family. Being out in Southeast Asia and Singapore sort of allowed for that. And a lot of my schooling as well. I, I went to uh, EWC, United um, World College, in Singapore and and that was phenomenal it was international and and I put a lot of my years in terms of my drives my passions and my ability and my work ethic down to that schooling to be honest but we also had a lot of connections elsewhere so we've got uh, Argentine family down in South America which is kind of where the South American connection comes in and I remember going out there at a few points of my childhood they have sort of this farm which is my grandmother's her family farm going out and spending time in La Pampa out with them. And my particular uncle was a vet. He was working the biggest estancias of Argentina uh, with these, you know, cattle, God knows, thousands of thousands strong. And as a kid, that is just a dream. You know, it's mucking around. I mean, in that environment, there's moments where it's incredibly intricate in terms of their practicing and others that's much more basic. And it's just so it's such an eye-opening experience and so I think that was a very much romanticized image when I was a kid you know and wanting to drive forward with pursuing veterinary medicine and I hold a lot of those experiences you know I attribute them to that drive. So that was the germinal seed of sort of having a family member being out there was it a straight shot for you in, into vet school? Yeah, I, in terms of everything, I mean, I made the decision very, very young that I wanted to be a vet. And so a lot of that can come down to stubbornness of achieving it rather than actually, you know, nobody could take me off the beaten path with it. 
even though at various points there may have been more logical directions to take. I don't think that now, but at the time, you know, you're at that age when you're trying to figure out what you want to do, there is certainly influences that could have changed that. But I was very stubborn in wanting to achieve it. And so, you know, I was very fortunate I did. And veterinary medicine, where I was schooling, there were not many people who went into that direction. Um, and so it kind of also gave you that manner as though you're setting a trend of which keeps you fixated on that, you know, and on trying to achieve it. And I think that was how I went through it. All of my studies were dictated on. I did uh, IB, I didn't do A-level, so everything I chose was how it's going to be a vet. Every bit of work experience I did, obviously, even when I was 15, 16, was, okay, how is this going to help me achieve this? And so I became almost... At the time, you don't think I probably became a little bit obsessive as a, as a kid thinking, uh, you know, this is what I want to achieve and, and nobody's going to change my mind. And because of that, I would say is, is how I got into vet school and got a bit. I didn't take a gap year. I was at that point, I think, where in the UK, the, the fees were changing. Not that, that was a huge influence, but it was a partial influence, certainly, of where I managed to get into Bristol and RBC and... Instead of delaying it for a year, my parents were quite keen on me taking a gap year. But for all of those other influences, we thought, well, uh, just crack on and let's get started. And so I chose Bristol. And, and yeah. Go an hour and we'll buy your car later because it'll be half the price of delaying till fees, fee changes coming. Absolutely. <laughs> and you mentioned something. I just, I want just for the international audience, you mentioned IB as over A levels. Would you just explain briefly what those things are? Yeah, of course. Um, international baccalaureate. So we, so the final two years, we sort of choose six subjects in total, three at a higher level and three at a standard level. A lot of them already chosen, you know, sort of math, obviously, a language, English. And so you'd have to, you could choose whether you do that standard or higher level. And then everything else is, is open, science, uh, sciences, humanities, and, and if you want to do further languages too. So I did do Spanish at a standard level. And then all of my higher levels, I think, were biology, chemistry. And I think I stuck uh, geography in there too. So, yeah, we covered a huge <laughs> covered a huge range of topics and throughout that period. And I absolutely loved it. You know, it gave you a lot more excitement in terms of each of the subjects and if there was a particular one that you know wasn't filling your or satisfying you at least you it wasn't all based on that you had five other subjects that I mean I was never a fantastic mathematician nor am I a linguist so you know I got my satisfaction out of geography and the sciences so but it still meant that those skills I was able to I was arguably forced to I was, I was too young to decide that myself so I was pleased about that, but um, you know, forced to try and persevere with mathematics and, and languages, where I would at that age probably preferred not to. So I'm grateful <laughs> that they did. <laughs> and you mentioned other logical things that might have made more sense, perhaps with reflection. Now, what were some of those? Well, I think um, I was always a big humanities historian. I always loved doing that, and I think with a year group about 300, it was very international. Uh, we were Southeast Asia. I think a lot of the veterinary profession really wasn't sort of in, in the pipeline. Nobody was talking about it. And other degrees or vocations, obviously, you were inundated with those. So those seemed much more logical pathways to take under that influence. Of course, medicine is a heavy one in that environment. I think a lot of academics came out of that school too. 
uh, whether it was in the physics and the likes. So at the same time, a lot of them went, so they did SATs, uh, so they went over to the States. They may have gone, uh, yeah, a lot of other people graduated, went to Australia. Um, others went, did national service in Singapore. So you had sort of everybody splitting in multiple different directions. And veterinary medicine wasn't really anything in the cards. So I decided for that, really. But everything else seemed more logical with that abundance of influences coming at you at, at an impressionable age. But it was my stubbornness that kept me on that path of saying, no, this is what I want to do. It was a really strong true north for you. It was. It was interesting where you work now. Did that range of six subjects that you took just completely maps to the work that you do now, right? Absolutely. I mean, it sort of works that way, doesn't it? I think it's crazy. Do you still have a network from that school? I'm, I'm always kind of curious about, you know, I just feel like the school I went to, like I'm in touch with a small number of people, but I wouldn't describe it as having provided me with a, you know, particular network. The vet school, certainly. Um, but, but an international school like that, you know, is it all too young or are there still people that you still think, actually, that's, that was quite useful for me? I've got, uh, yeah, I've got many friends. I mean, the, the ability to keep in touch with them is limited, but I think a lot of good friends where if we made that connection back again, you know, you'd be back to normal. And a couple of friends that, you know, still going to their weddings, but they're all over the world, which is fantastic in one sense. It's a really amazing network, but being able to see them is uh, next to nothing. You know, some of my best friends from school, I've, I've not actually made out to Australia to see them. Uh, they've thankfully come this way. So there's pros and cons with all of it. But it is a good network. And, and I have done some things for our alumni organization because uh, UWC, I think there's God knows how many colleges around around the world. But just our alumni's, alumni, so I have a way we pronounce that, for the UWC in Singapore. I've done a few little things for them and, and uh, to try and encourage this sort of veterinary profession, and, but also just adventure and, and getting out there sort of style. And so I'd love to do more of that, but it's, uh, it's trying to fit that into your timetable. That's it. So through vet school, you said you wanted to be a vet, but your background was more, sounds more sort of, or your influence, the strong influence was on farming side. Where did the conservation start showing up? Where does, where does that side of it? You did general practice for three years. What was the sense there? Or were you just finding yourself? Yeah, so I think conservation was very heavy in our schooling anyway, when in Singapore. We did a lot of, um, so just touching on that, I mean, we did a lot of trips, fantastic tri- field trips at school, into Nepal, into Vietnam working with you know and you could choose where you, you did it I worked with a rescue site at 17 in in Chi in Vietnam and, and I think it was very much core these global concerns is what they called it so it was core to our education which was really phenomenal you're looking back on it you know it, it, it uh, was a huge influence but I think when I went into practice I did about two and a half years on uh, Guernsey uh, the Channel Islands it's a big mixed practice. I, I did also, um, you know, have fun. I was given the responsibility to work with the GSPCA, which allowed me a little bit more to satisfy myself with a bit of wildlife in terms of birds of prey and the like. So I at least try to keep that interest up as best I could. Was there a reason you chose Bristol over London? I'm not trying to drive a wedge here. I'm just curious listening to you. There's nothing particularly normal about the pathway for you. And it's not like wildly abnormal. I don't mean that. But, you know, you've done the international school. Guernsey, for the listeners who don't know, is a channel island that's between the UK and France. 
So it's kind of a little bit off the beaten path. Now we've got the Galapagos. You know, it's, there's kind of like a little pattern there. So I'm just I'm curious. Yeah, like, I, I, Bristol, I think there was an element of looking into it, coming back from spending my entire childhood in Singapore, what culture shock I would uh, find myself in. And whilst I spent most summers back in the UK, we do have family connections in Guernsey, so that's kind of where the Guernsey connection came in. But I think Bristol came across as a much more open environment for a potential culture shock, I think, rather than central London. I think going, so that's kind of, I also loved the city. I went to visit it and it was just, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm here in Bristol now. I mean, I've, I left and have come back and bought a place in Bristol just because I'm off that connection. I think it satisfied a lot of um, my interest in not being just a big city, but having uh, access to the coast um, a lot more, which was big for me as well. And the countryside, so it kind of fit a lot of a lot of my parameters, even if I wouldn't really have thought them all through at the time. What was your experience as you moved into general practice? What was your experience in general practice, and then what was the point where you decided, okay, it's time, I'm going to go do this this thing that I'm on this planet to do for just now? Well, I think I always was going to do that. I had a great desire to head straight to South Africa when I graduated. I'd spent uh, some time out there previously to, you know, just doing one of these uh, veterinary programs. I spent a good six weeks out there and absolutely loved it. And I thought that was kind of the route I wanted to take. However, uh, logic comes from your parents every now and again. And they did, you know, make the suggestion that, well, look, if you go off and do that for a few years and you come back to the UK, you wouldn't have consolidated all of that education in practice. And that made that wrong very true with me. And it was a very, very good decision. So I thought, well, you know, I'm always able to do that, but let's go straight into practice and get myself confident and competent in in diagnostics, surgery and everything like that. So that if I wanted to disappear for a bit of time doing this wildlife work or conservation and found it didn't work, I could at least come back and I wasn't incompetent. You know, that's the wrong word to use, but I'd at least had that experience backing me up. Yeah. And you're building a lot of transferable skills there as well. Absolutely. Whatever you want to do in the future. So where did you move or what was the move that took you away from Guernsey? I can't remember exactly where I found this this advert. I, I was looking for volunteering work abroad. I wanted to get stuck into I thought okay I'm two and a half years in I feel very confident and competent in my general work and it takes a lot of time and we're consistently learning but at that point I felt like I could get out there and, and I would be of use. So um, South America was going to be the place to go for me I had family connections there I wanted to get those connections back and, and revisit them I wanted to get stronger with Spanish language and so it kind of fit that model for me and I came across this advert looking for a head vet of this clinic in the Galapagos. And, and of course, at that stage and that age, it was, it was stupid not to. And um, I jumped at it, jumped at the opportunity, applied for it, went through sort of very straightforward process. And within a very short amount of time, they said, well, look, we want you out there and for a six-month period. And I thought, well, absolutely. And six months wasn't much to commit to. It was a, a very bold decision looking back on it or certainly right after it because... Um, a, becoming a head vet environment I was not prepared for, you know, granted. Um, it was an adventure and I was, you know, I had this habit of just sticking my head 
in first and figure out as I go along. And that can pay dividends. And other times it can really bring attention to areas that you weren't aware of. And, and so I made this decision to go out and I was immersed in this environment where, you know, the entire clientele and the people that you were engaging with spoke solely Spanish. And, and I'd taken lessons again and, and likes, but I was in no way ready to, you know, I could converse with people. I didn't know how to do a consult in, you know. Yeah, the colloquialisms and then the actual medical jargon within a different language are so different to getting by and ordering lunch, Absolutely. three meals a day and some beer. Absolutely. And I was very confident. I took pride in my communication skills when I was in practice. I felt that was a really important part of my job. And that was a lot of the areas that I'd work on. And I think, you know, and I, I had confidence in that. And then suddenly I was in an environment where I couldn't use that. And, you know, I could explain the issue and explain the plan. But, you know, you can't make that connection or build that trust in the way that I was used to. And so that took a huge amount of very rapid learning. Those are two areas of massive interest of mine are sort of, you know, building trust and forming relationships via communication, whether verbal or nonverbal. Having been through that, I asked, and this is just pure selfish curiosity here, Ben, because, you know, I always thought, oh, I'll work abroad for a year. And I thought, well, oh, France or Spain or somewhere like that. And I didn't for that very reason. I was like, I'm going to get myself just tied in knots and I'm really not that good at languages at all. So it ended up being Australia. But I always wondered, I'm really keen to sort of hear like, what, what was missing? What was different? How did you fill that gap? Because you, you still do it to this day now. It's just subtleties in language, isn't it? To make people truly understand, appreciate and trust your judgment and how you make um, the clinical decisions. And it was multifactorial there. It wasn't just the communication barrier. It was the ability, it's my disparity of the understanding of how the animal-human connection worked out there, the practicalities of owning animals out there, what their exposure to veterinary medicine was out there, and, you know, and their trust of us as a profession in the first place. So you've got multiple variables there of which... I was unpacking all at once, trying to understand how, how best to to approach this. And the, the honest truth at the start is I was very fortunate. We had a student at the time who was an Ecuadorian student who was seeing practice in the clinic. And she was she did a lot of the added explanations when I needed it. And so that was, uh, I'm still very close with her to this day. And that was really, really important. And whilst in time I managed to close that gap off, in various areas, it still needed that extra Ecuadorian touch to be able to speak to the people and get them to understand. The difficulty with that is that it was the student communicating the issues, not the practitioner. And so the experience that I had and um, confidence I had over the last two and a half years in practice, I couldn't transfer that ability to communicate directly to her. So I had to trust in her judgment in how to manage the situation as well. So you have all of these these multiple factors going on of which in some way could from an external source look like a complete disaster but in reality it worked really well certainly for the beginning and I think I suddenly really appreciated the desire of the people to want to understand which was key if they wanted to turn around and say you're I don't believe a word you're saying they could do that and I would have no ability to try and suggest that that animal needed care 
but the fact is that they actually came in and they really wanted to try and learn and try and try and know. So I, I have give so much credit to the people there. What was the actual mission at that point? For those six months, what was the the thing that you were there to try to accomplish? It was a project that had been there sort of for eight, nine years, I think, by that point. And it was the original plan is to sterilize the growing population of dogs and cats in that environment. And that's still very much the objective we have with our program now. It's trying to tackle the, although we're more focused in how we're going to achieve it and where we want to achieve it. And so at that point, it was, a, it was, I have utmost respect for the project, but it was, um, it was overwhelmed with its ability to act. The whole idea is to try and tackle that conflict border between domestic animals and endemic wildlife. And, and, uh, and that's kind of, we were looking at trying to tackle a portion of that with sterilizing and reducing humanely, humane population management. A subject that has come under fairly intense scrutiny in the last three years for obvious reasons, <laughs> disease transmission and one health issues that we've, yeah. we've all been intensely exposed to. I'm curious then about next steps. So that was your sort of first six months. And that was after your first three years in practice. You're rather more intimately involved in the situation in there now. So that panned out well, but I'd love to hear, I'd hear now, and perhaps this is where we segue into talking a bit more about the work that you've done in, in founding your own and you know, the Galapagos Animal Doctors. Now, is that an organization, is that a charity as well? The Ecuadorian charity is Pan Animalia Galapagos, and uh, the program project is called Galapagos Animal Doctors. So uh, that's kind of um, how it works. How did that come about then? And you know what kept you? Like I've had the pleasure of visiting Ecuador and doing a bit of travelling through it, and actually possibly being one of the flukiest people and getting on a boat once and nearly having the boat tipped over by breaching humpback quills. It was one of the most wow. incredible boats. <laughs> yeah, sounds amazing. I can't remember the name of the place, actually. It was just, it was about an hour and a half, maybe north, two hours north of Guayaquil, and it was, um, there was two small islands. We, we took uh, a boat out. Isla de la Plata? It might be like that. that. So be, it's yeah. sort of the, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've not been there myself, but I've heard of it with uh, some amazing sights. Ecuador was one of my favorite countries to visit and it was one of the most random. I got a job there. I got up close and personal with a volcano <laughs> and then we met, uh, it was an American lady who was teaching, she taught English and things and you know, she'd gone out there and she, I was in a cafe in Banos. Okay, yeah. Sitting at the foot of that giant volcano that blew up like quite catastrophically a few years later as volcanoes do. And just sitting in a cafe, getting some lunch, and it was weirdly, it was a Swiss cafe serving cheese fondue. And it was me and my, my then wife, and now on the other side of the cafe, there was a couple, and I heard, overheard the, the phrase, No, 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 the blue underlying thing, that's called a link. You click it. And I just thought, oh, That's a great accent. I'll give you credit for that. <laughs> Thank you. There you go. This was, it was nothing like her accent, but I just turned down. I was like, who doesn't know a blue underline thing's a link? And who uses blue underline things as links anymore? <laughs> so there was this live training session going on. And anyway, ended up to chatting away to this lady who was doing the training. And she said, oh, 
didn't have any place planned to go, sort of done a little bit of traveling, uh, very open schedule, just had to be leaving to fly down to Peru from Guayaquil, like maybe four days later. She said, oh, I'm doing a drive across the Andes down to the coast. Do you fancy joining me? <laughs> so we oh, did. Wow. I drove up over the Andes and down into this place and it was it was terrific. And then out in this boat and we didn't have the budget to go to the Galapagos, either time or money. So we got to go to these two islands and Amazing. just seeing the humpback whales breaching, you know, with calves. It was just like, That's insane. my mind yeah. was completely, <laughs> completely blown. I think Isla de la Plata, if it is that. Um, is known and I, 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 I don't necessarily that. agree with it but it's it's called the poor man's Galapagos because they've got <laughs> a lot of the I, I don't know if that's actually a term that I can use myself or, or one of it to be used but I've heard that because they have do have like the blue footed boobies and all of that there and so it's still within that chain yep. but um, but yeah it's not that extra cost to go across to it um, itself that was it it turned out to be a good decision since uh, almost everybody on the boat was violently ill <laughs> <laughs> even though it was a tiny little trip to go out to that those islands so that's my only connection really to ecuador but i'm curious as to what grabbed you and just made you think wow this place it was a combination of things i think there was uh, i was in love with the place when i first went out there i think it, it fit everything i wanted to it was it was very you're by the sea you had an abundance of natural wildlife I was a keen diver, still am, and so it was. It was really tremendous to go out there. You know, scuba with hammerheads and, and things. It was just incredible. It was just a, quite a relaxed environment as well. So I did absolutely love the islands, and I kind of just wanted to draw attention to the issues that you know we were immersed in as a project as well, because I could, you know, you could separate the two, going to enjoy the environment, but then during the days and the weeks I was stuck managing this program that was you know very much overwhelmed and there was a, a particular outbreak we had of distemper in about so I, I stayed for six months and then I stayed on for another three with them and we had an outbreak of distemper in 2019 that I think sort of consolidated a lot of my thought process of how what I wanted to achieve because it just it was uh, quite a exhausting period of time we had an abundance of volunteers coming out a lot of them students often at times found myself myself I had one vet tech Jessie she was there with me the whole time and we often had five students and, and managing it in that environment was really really challenging and this distemper outbreak started with I'd never seen it before I'd never been exposed to it before we learn all about it I now do actually talks on some talks at university of all the videos of, of these 100 plus animals with distemper symptoms because it is you know for the first two weeks I you know they came in with kennel cough symptoms and being from a UK environment you know you're like well this is straightforward this is very obvious not a big issue and then suddenly more and more started coming in I was thinking okay something's I've never seen a kennel cough outbreak like this and then you know a few days later we started to have the first neurological case come in and I thought oof, okay and then it was a storm for about six weeks we actually had 144 dogs come into us and we recorded these, of which we had about 93 of them we actually submitted for PCR. And we're actually going to hopefully publish a, a case study on this uh, particular event. Uh, but that's not representative of the caseload of the entire outbreak um, across the island uh, itself or the islands potentially as well. And it was uh, quite distressing, as you, as you can imagine, um, and trying to communicate what distemper was and what the 
prognosis was. And in an environment that euthanasia was not really ever considered or thought about or accepted and was incredibly challenging. Was that just a cultural difference, Ben? Yeah, very much cultural. And we had dogs very much, and I do have videos of these, having the classic lip-smacking fits and all of this. And the owners say, we want it to die at home. And you have to go through that whole conversation very adamantly uh, in some environments as well, aggressively trying to say, no, I don't want to, you know, this has to come home. It has to die at home. And so it's, it's trying to manage that environment was exhausting. We had a lot of fatigue amongst the team, emotional fatigue, uh, which they got very exhausted and frightened by, including myself, you know, and, and by the time you get to, you know, the end of it, you're, you realize how harsh and matter of fact you become. You have, but so uh, you have these cases and, and if a dog has neurological symptoms, it's not that bad. And, and at the moment uh, you can't, we can't admit them into this very, very small building for any form of symptomatic care or treatment. But if you sent them home to advise on isolation and uh, monitoring, for example, with a treatment plan to try and ease some of the symptoms, um, there's very small chance that they'd actually do that. And you see the dog on the street the next day. So sending these animals back, are we only persisting, knowingly persisting, um, allowing the, sorry, the, the outbreak to persist? So you had all of these ethical questions complete conflict conflict, absolutely of how we manage this and and we were naive to it as well i mean i'd never been exposed to this and you know if you go through you know there are parts of that environment where some colleagues so there were private vets too um who dressed them very much in a similar position but didn't know how to deal with it and we were trying to advise but you then have conflicting accounts on how to manage these you know and, and the idea behind vaccination of which wasn't present on the islands really or intermittently was at that point it created this environment that was very hard to manage and i think that particular event of which the american charity then decided okay well, they're going to close doors or i thought i don't think this is uh, this is what i want to do and i thought there's a lot of work that can be done here supporting the existing institutions the governments as well as other individuals to to better manage urban domestic animals on the Galapagos. And, and certainly with infectious disease transmission, they are, you know, it's, um, it's zoonotic and, and it can cross the species barrier to the endemic sea lions, for example. So you have that connection there too. So that was quite a tumultuous period of growth for me as a practitioner, but also just as, as, as a person, to be honest, of trying to navigate that. God, I've got like a checklist of questions just from this one story now. So the first one was, again, this is from actually from just a clinical curiosity point of view. What was the mortality rate that you experienced in the cases that you were exposed to? Well, this is what we don't know. So we've, we've managed to record a selection of those that actually came back or we called them up later to see if the animal, because very few people would return, even if they had mild yeah. signs and very few people... And so the mortality rate of what we recorded within that area was above 22% or something like that. And we know it would be higher for just recording a failure and being able to record the outbreak properly. But yeah, we did have to euthanize a substantial amount eventually. A lot of them, we had whole litters of puppies that um, very much 
had half had died and the other half were very much on their way. And it was um, it was incredibly challenging for our students as well because we had students at that time and we had to close the clinic. So we were only dealing with distemper for a good six-week period and that's all they came and saw. And to be honest, I'm quite pleased because that was, I find that was such a powerful moment in my career and life to learn that, that I think that exposure for them, I think was actually pretty powerful and how much they would have loved to do other stuff, don't get me wrong. I feel it was a period of growth for any individual in that environment. Is that then the moment where you say, I'm committed to this, you've seen another charity pull out, this place is ticking a lot of boxes and suddenly you're seeing, but there's a, you know, the, there's a lot of education thing. As you were speaking, I was, I was actually thinking we take so for granted our, our cultural norms and think that they're the same everywhere perhaps. And they're just not. And I was, you know, I was thinking also of, you know, countries where Buddhism is prevalent and euthanasia, just that's not a thing that is, is really okay in countries like that as well. But you've got an opportunity for education that you're identifying here. And this is maybe where I circle back to that. You know, what, what strikes me about the work that you do is, or if there's themes, if there were, it's, you know, it's, I would put it in the three C's. It's community, conservation, and coast. Is this place just wrapping up all of those things that matter to you? And, and I'll, I'll come back to that question. Have I got that right, or is there is there more going on there? I think that pretty much sums up a lot of it. I, in terms of um, what I wanted to, what I, I saw, or factors that I wanted to pursue. I, I, I think it wasn't clear cut at the time for me. You know, I look at those retrospectively, and to be honest, you're unpacking these with me, so it's quite good. Um, I think at the time that they've uh, contributed to, I think a lot of the other aspect of that moment also was the feeling that I, I wasn't ready to go back into clinical practice or life in the UK. And I felt like I just touched the surface of what I wanted to do. And so the American charity that I was working with they closed and therefore my time was up and you know at the end of this outbreak I was that was it I didn't have any other plans I didn't have any idea what to do and and the only thing really to go back to was going back to the UK and and looking at the next steps of my career and in reality I said I don't want to do that and so I could have quite been less headstrong in some environments and looked at other opportunities out in that part of the world but within the my mindset at the time I said, well, no, this is where I want to do it. And I said, there's a gap that I think can be filled. And so I'm going to do it. And that was very similar to me wanting to be a vet when I was a kid. I made that decision and that was what I was going to achieve. And and that's how it really started, I think. So you have a tie-up with um, WVS and obviously with your own project. How does that tie-up start to happen? And also then, what's the objective? Yeah. You have an idea of what good and done looks like here and how many this is a classic Dave question you know how many points of impact have you been able to have like how do you measure the success of what you're doing so I suppose there's a how did it come about what are you working on and then you know how do you measure success and what does that look like what is your definition of success here how it really started so I came back and I started up Pananamalia in the UK as a UK charity and I basically kicked that off quite heavily making all the connections, the contacts, getting the reports, getting the funding, uh, developing the plan. And I had a few ideas and, and it was going strong. And then COVID hit. And and I think there was a period of about six weeks where I tried to self-fund the development of this. 
as best as I could. But the whole time I actually had a, I'd been sending these updates to Luke Gamble of WVS and telling what I want to achieve from it. And I give all the credit to Luke on how this then tied up because he saw in it something that I don't think many others did and or were unwilling to explore. And that is why what Luke is so good with, he finds those small pockets of that fit into his ideals. And I owe him a lot for bringing this to where it is now. Because he, he then said, well, look, join join WVS and let's run this through that. And that provided me with a salary. It provided me with a, an ability to to put more time into it. And it evolved from there. And of course, then we could secure funding. We could secure, I could learn a huge amount from WVS and all of its work in other parts of the world and their team. And so suddenly this project went from a small the small idea into something very achievable and much bigger than the original vision. And so I owe a lot of that to Luke's original idea of come join us. And he put a stab in the dark and he put that uh, that with me and I, I, I'm very grateful for it. And so then it sort of evolved from there and we spent a good year and a half, I think. It took a long time during COVID to build the team up. The ones we wanted, I had a few uh, good friends and colleagues there, Ecuadorian vets. We then evolved that. We then got legal status as an Ecuadorian charity, which actually only came through very recently, thankfully. And after this period of time, we then launched, we found a new location, found a new clinic in the centre of Puerto Ayora in, in Santa Cruz. And we launched it in January of this year. And we have this with, run by a head vet and a supportive vet, at both Ecuadorian. One is Galapagenian. So they're running it, they're talking to the people and, and they're driving that programme with myself and, and our wider team uh, to where we want it to go. Um, there's still a lot to do, but within, you know, one year, you know, we, it's such a small team. It's, we've done over 600 sterilisations at over 1,200 consultations in terms of of that. And, and that's, that's exceeded what we expected or wanted in the first year in consolidating our work. So, you know, we're, we're very thrilled by that. And that's down to all the hard work of the people there on the ground. And next year we've got, yeah, new plans. I think the objectives change like every project. You, you have to evolve and adapt to a changing environment. And our original objectives for the first year were to catch up with sterilizations that needed to be done, that couldn't have been done during covid and then um, going into next year, a lot of our objectives are focused on um, on looking into explore vaccination programs with the government and research and helping to develop research in that environment related to that conflict between the wildlife and the domestic animals. That's probably a neat place just to segue off into a slightly different exploration line and Maybe we'll just come back to this, and I, I, you know, I want to make sure we get a link to the, the work you're doing so that people can learn about it, support it, and we'll, we'll certainly, I'll, I'll ask you for where people can learn more about that as we get toward the end of the, the interview. But I wonder if we can jump off the specific work with the the local animal or on land animal populations, the stray animals and the the sort of family animals and move more into the sort of coast part. And you're kind of on the front line, a place of incredible importance from a conservation and ecological point of view, and presumably a place where the effects of human development are perhaps acutely felt, but not 
as widely promoted or presented to the world. You know, you hear things in the Pacific Ocean, these massive gyres of plastic that just sit there slowly rotating and never, you know, never disintegrating or slowly disintegrating to microplastics and just the toxic effects on the sea population and the ocean's importance to the world. This might be just a giant question to sort of chew off, but I wondered if we could start with, you know, what is, for any noddy lay people, and let's include me as one of those, what is the importance of the ocean just generally to our ability to live on the land? And what are you seeing on the front line? Perhaps you're not as focused on that from a, a work perspective, but certainly from a personal interest in where you where you live for you know, a lot of your year. What are you seeing there that has you worried or or not, as the case may be? Yeah, I think the um, the biggest barrier that I might want to chop down a little bit, uh, not unfairly, is having the Galapagos Islands as this bastion of the natural world with regards to its isolationism. Uh, you know, it, it is suffering from the same stresses as human globalization as the rest of the continent. And it's, it unfortunately can be more acutely felt in that environment than potentially elsewhere. And I think the sea we can't survive on the land without uh, without healthy sea. That's that's definitive in in as much literature as, as as possible. And I and I'm a big have a big passion for trying to protect the sea. But I, I also have to look at the the reality of what we're facing as well. The biggest issue I think globally we see is overfishing at the moment. And there is some. And this is I'm bringing trying to bring it into my association, say, with the islands as well. Because mm. there used to be huge issues with regards to giant fishing fleets just outside the marine reserve of the Galapagos. And geographically, there was a migration route channel uh, going from the Galapagos Islands to the Cocos Islands near, I think that's off Costa Rica, off Central America. And the two natural reserves didn't cross. And so you could have fishing fleets quite literally stick between these two islands and pick up breeding animals and sharks, hammerheads. It was quite a frightening event. And only this year, that was frightening. And, and when these big fishing fleets came, uh, you used to, and there used to be like cities developing, lights you could see out there. Um, I think when those happened at various seasonal periods, you uh, had a huge abundance of plastics washing up on, on the islands. And so you could see that parallel drawn. That's the negative. That's the, the frightening reality. The positive is that there are changes that have been made recently. Ecuador uh, recently extended and expanded their marine reserves. So there is no longer this loophole between these, you know, on this migration route. And that is phenomenal. That's really fantastic. But it's a drop in the ocean, quite literally, you know, in, in, in what we need to achieve. And so... I think the Galapagos is as at risk as anywhere else. And it's not going to be, if we start to damage our oceans more so and continue that um, at the, the rate that we're doing, the Galapagos is not going to be the last one alive. It will go down quite quickly with the rest of it. And that's the tragedy of it. We have this power that we, we have with the islands thinking if that stays fine, you know, we have these bastions like this all over the world. And that won't happen like in the it's too connected the sea is too connected and um, and we will see that disappear just as quickly as as we're seeing elsewhere 
it's a depressing notion to hear of fishing fleets, just that the size, the volume, the scale, and to think that the planet can keep giving, giving, giving. Are you generally upbeat or where do you sit on the, the sort of radar or spectrum of how screwed we are? <laughs> <laughs> I remain That's such a leading It's very true. I refuse to be dogged by pessimism. And it's really <laughs> hard, uh, you know, knife edge to walk along because you do have to be realistic as well. You can't be optimistic for the sake of being optimistic. You have to be able, you know, unfortunately, there is pessimism will be there in the situation that we find ourselves. But and what does pessimism and, and realism mean? I mean, you could go into a debate on that in reality i think you know i refuse to be dogged by pessimism and bring all these things up i mean you have to balance them you have to balance with what the reality is with actually what is the next solution and in say with conservation as a whole it is all about taking you know small steps you know if you go down to all of these uh, activists and new you know with the earth prize recently there's some fantastic award uh, winners from that they're really exciting technology that's coming out in the name of conservation i mean there's so much potential there but if you look at it as an overall it seems impassable doesn't it it just seems overwhelming and that's just not the way we we should be aware of that and but we should not that becomes that stifles initiative it really does and if you start to you know you've got to teach the wider picture but not in a manner that stifles new initiatives, I think is the best way to say it. Because otherwise yeah, you can so get we... just dogged down into thinking, well, yeah, okay, we are. It does seem on paper that we're, we're going in, a, you know, we're past the point of no return in some angles, maybe, in others we're not. And we need this new initiative coming through from all over the world in how to tackle it. If it even if it goes down from your own environment, your own community, and your own ability to deal with plastic waste in your small town i mean that is that's what you need it's changing mindset not changing the world or changing mindset does change the world i don't know whichever way you want to play around with that yeah if enough people act but p people and listeners to this podcast are much more likely to act of course than others but yeah it's that willingness to accept the really uncomfortable or or potentially brutal truth of the matter but without losing hope because with if you lose hope then why bother this is it and um, there's always there's always hope, and there's always a lot to do, and there's um, there's always so much potential with it, which is the exciting bit. Which is you know this is why taking off. This is why I like working with a group of people like at WVS because they're all independently driven people. They're self driven, you know, and and that's the sort of people that I really love working with. It's not as though there's a system or structure necessarily that requires you leaning on others. It's a case. This is. WVS could be looked at arguably a platform for that too, you know, and, and, and I won't speak for the whole, the whole organization, but I, I do look at it like that. It is a platform for very self-driven people and very passionate people. And that is sort of the environment that you want to be surrounded with. And there's loads of environments like that and loads of organizations that have a similar style. Let's maybe talk about that for a, a second, because that's an interesting word, a platform. Could you explain a bit more about what you mean by that? And again, from your perspective, I know you're not speaking on behalf of the organization here, but from your perspective as somebody who had a, a vision to then plug into the WVS ecosystem and to meet Luke and to then have that vision expanded and now be actually operational, 
and I, you know, it sounds operational and in a sustainable way where you're you're having a measurable positive impact. That might be quite interesting to other people in a sort of what what can be quite a siloed. Like I'm working on my thing over here, my other thing over here. The lack of connectedness, you know, you're up against this whole massive, you know, industrial complex of Western organized society. You know, you've not got a chance against that. So talk to more about the notion of it being a platform. And, you know, you've, you've given us an outline of how it sort of worked plugging in for you, but it'd be quite inspiring, I expect, to people who are also interested in conservation as to, to what you mean by that. I think the... WVS as an organisation has been, and I've only been in it with the last two and a half, three years, but it's a constantly evolving organisation. And, you know, we now have projects in all over the place. Our solid ones are India, Thailand, Malawi and, and Ecuador. We then have multiple task force work. And so it's, it's just this ever-expanding lot of potential. And they're all ideas that have been cultivated, I think is the nicest way of saying it. It's a case of the vision doesn't necessarily come from the top down. It comes from all over. And I think the organisational structure has allowed ideas like it's provided to me of allowing me to cultivate my vision within the framework of what's achievable. And that's what's been really quite special about it. And I recently went over to India to see some of our training centres there to basically get exposure to the team and, and how they function because we were hoping to you know sort of replicate this and the success of these in, in, in different environments and it's exactly the same they're all self-driven people who run these and they run it in a style that is is not insular though there's a there's a tremendous amount of trust and and honesty and and respect between the leading members that uh, allows it to evolve and not be stuck with one vision you know and and so on i don't know if i'm explaining that the way i particularly feel with it it sounds like quite decentralized autonomy but within are you plugging into resources or you know is the resource experience networks funding is it less decentralized than that I'm just i'm curious yeah. as to sort of... i mean it's very much run within the structure of of wvs luke gamble down into the directors and out to these organizations but it's not a place that i've ever worked before that allows that it you're you're driven solely by the the expectations above you and uh, there's a lot more autonomy in how these projects and have deciding how these projects evolve and that's what i've enjoyed and that's kind of why i say it's, it's been a platform because a lot of these projects have evolved on their own and then have come into the wider group and so they're all fairly well run from there on their own and then you know higher up into wvs uh, where we have to dictate directions too yeah, it's just been a lot more, it's been a privilege to work with that because you just uh, share a lot of um, speaking with people within it um, and their visions and their ideas and, and their desires and, and so on. It's, it's been quite, it's been very refreshing. As you've gone on your career journey, what are some of the most important leadership lessons that you've learned along the way from working with other humans? God, I'm still learning them, Dave. Still learning them as I go. <laughs> There's been moments where I've managed people not now necessarily just now, but also past where uh, that I felt I feel I've done a good job, and other times that I know I've acted poorly in the manner of what I want to achieve. And I think the fundamental is providing the respect to the team that they deserve. And I think that's it's always that's always one that uh, is so obvious, 
But when it comes under periods of pressure, you can slip into saying, well, no, you know, defining this is the definition of, of what we need to achieve. Um, when in reality, the, you know, they are very capable of doing it in their own way. And it's trying to understand them and respecting them to do it, I think. And that's, that's you know, I, I learned managing a team really young and I didn't do it very well, to be honest. I, you know, I was immersed when I first went out there and into students and I was arguably the only clinical vet there at any one time. And I didn't know you're having to dictate methods and surgical skills and protocols and that are not necessarily completely 100% the best way of doing it and I didn't uh, utilize I didn't have the opportunity to but this is where I recognized being on my own was always it was a killer in terms of good practice in, in veterinary medicine is I didn't have the ability to utilize other people's opinions and then as, as, the, as we've come and that was the an old period of time with an old charity now that I have a wider team it's a delight because um, you can utilize that experience and develop these protocols together. You can understand where your previous ones were completely horrendous in some ways or incredible at others. <laughs> so I want to move on. I'm just sort of keeping my eye on the clock here a little bit. And I wondered, before we move into sort of rapid fire questions, I kind of wanted to ask about what are your immediate you know, plans for the future? Like, where does this project take you in the next three years? And what do you need to make that happen? So very much our, our vision within it is, is to use it as a platform for work in South America as a whole. You know, we're looking at next year to get involved in some large campaigns on, on the mainland. As a registered Ecuadorian foundation, we have that uh, capability to to provide support and, and build projects with, with other local groups and even the government as well, and look into making some big impacts in those environments as well. Uh, the Galapagos itself is going to be consistently evolving and it's going to be filtering into into about seven different directions, best practice, uh, volunteering and training, as well as international but also Ecuadorian students as well, and uh, vaccination and, and, and the like. So we've got a huge strategy of how to evolve that, but our vision is much wider than the Galapagos alone. And so, yeah, hopefully by we're coming out to the end of the year, so this is where we're putting all our d- ideas on paper and budgeting for what we want to achieve next year. So um, I'll wait until I do that before I say much more. (laughs) (laughs) And what's coming across there as well is, you know, I think there's a a notion that, you know, when we are from backgrounds of a certain amount of privilege and and the ability to travel and go around and see the world is something that's, you know, it's on the beaten path for many of us from the UK, from Australia, from the US, we have a chance to do that. But you're working a lot with local students and local people to bring to build build skills there, right? It's more. It sounds much more like it's locally embedded than it's you know. Well, it has to be. I think all of this is for sustainability and to make maximum impact. It's providing opportunities to the people there to run it. I think you know we have this um, this. There may be a disparity, and I, I may not be saying this right of, of our ability to understand how veterinary profession functions in other parts of the world if we haven't experienced it we don't know and you know i and so i think these sort of programs i think for our students here in the uk um, i think are, are really powerful because you get so much exposure and your entire perception of the veterinary profession changes you know we there are incredibly skilled practitioners in these environments and there's incredibly driven people that you know just 
cultivating that, they'll then go and lead it, you know, in the future. And this is, you know, our Indian training centers, it was very good to see is that they've been running for 10 years. You know, they, every two weeks they have a training program with, with eight to 12 new vets or students, Indian new vets or students. And the network that they've created, you know, have evolved and helped develop these surgical skills is tremendous. And these then go off and actually make the difference in, as well in the long run. So it's so important cultivating as much as you can in those environments as well. And that's kind of the fun of it, really, to be honest. That's how, how I learn, you know, and, and that's the fun I get out of it because uh, you, you do feel like you, it's very rewarding as well. Seeing those skills grow in the broader veterinary community and helping animal welfare. Okay, I'm going to tip it over into our sort of more short form or rapid fire questions. I've got a special one for you, <laughs> which I've not asked anyone before. So you get an, the honor of a first question. Do you have a favorite tropical disease you've acquired whilst on your travels? <laughs> I've actually been all right. I've, I thankfully haven't. I've managed to avoid all of that. All ones that I may have had and not known about is probably more of a reliable (laughs) answer to that. My experience of tropical diseases is that you rarely have them and don't know about it. Fair enough, yeah. (laughs) So I've got to ask you a slight follow-on, and this just popped in my head. So so when I was traveling through Central America, I think it was Central, and I I think I probably got sick up in Central America, up in um, Guatemala, I think I had a... A well-intended but probably not the best decision I've ever made sort of omelette got pretty sick and uh, sort of recovered a little bit but then got very sick again whilst in Ecuador and I was in a hotel and a, a hotel in Quito and I sort of went to I sort of dragged myself to reception as a sort of sweating just destroyed mess and went I need a doctor where can I get a doctor and they actually had a doctor on call for the hotel that they got in and she came in and looked at me and it was brilliant. And she just gave me a prescription that then the hotel actually sent somebody out to get and brought back what looked like the sorts of, there were two giant yellow tablets that honestly a cow would have needed some sort of probang to get it down the throat. <laughs> I just thought, how, is it? how am I going to take this? Like I didn't even, it's more like a biscuit than a, an actual tablet. So I sort of swallowed it and you know, like sticking up a side with my neck eating a goat or something like that and I sort of managed to get this thing down and it absolutely cured me in a heartbeat and I, when I came home I later read you know tried to find out what it was and it and it was I just couldn't establish what this medicine this magic medicine was but it, abs- it utterly cured me yeah I'd love to know what that is actually <laughs> it probably was for cows you know <laughs> oh, I know right exactly it was something for amoebic dysentery <laughs> And I've I've yet yet to know what it was, but it was absolutely brilliant. So I will always be grateful to that wonderful doctor in the pharmacy in the hotel for <laughs> coming to my my aid in that moment. So well, that's disappointing. No, no sort of amusing. Well, I, well, I would, but I mean, any form of of that. I mean, I went through. Um, I did in India. I, I did the rickshaw run about a few years ago from north to south, and I mean, there's you know the. the biggest thing i ever i need to know all about that the biggest what thing is, I, what is that so i went I, I basically went on a rickshaw from and there's a big group of people i think they do it quite frequently from rajasthan in the north down to Kochi in the south and we did that over 16 days we're just us in a rickshaw and me and my friend will from vet school so we did that and I, i'll be honest the biggest thing that i consumed on that trip was charcoal tablets you know whether there's something um 
you pick up on those trips it certainly is but, uh, were you actually running or were you just no, traveling it, was the, motor, it was the most one so it took us 16 days so i think it was like three and a half thousand kilometers in, in, in the end wow. so it was a cracking trip i, I have oh memories of that would be absolutely terrific the rickshaw run it was great you just dictate your route and just have to get there within a time period it doesn't matter where you go but is it a race or no i, I think the, the kind of the motto is if if you win you've lost <laughs> if you see what i mean <laughs> The whole point is the adventure yeah. on, on the way. India is a, a spellbinding, terrific country. I mean, just, I've only dipped my feet, but what a place. So you would recommend the rickshaw run? I'd recommend the rickshaw way. run, definitely. It was tremendous fun. If I have a spare 16 days in my calendar, then I'm going to make, make <laughs> I'll, that I'll send you the link to it. Please, that would be good. We'll put that into the show notes as well. <laughs> So that'll be good. Okay, let's get into a couple more of these more commonly asked questions. So what are you most proud of in your career? Like you've done quite a lot of pretty impactful work and you're doing a lot of giving. Part A, what are you most proud of? And I've got a part B to that is when you're in a situation where you're doing a lot of giving, there's a risk of giving too much and running out of juice. Like, how do you balance what you do with you know, not having compassion fatigue, you know, you're seeing quite a lot of challenging stuff. So I think what I'm most proud of, I mean, it changed. I don't know if there's a most proud of, I'm, I'm very proud of a lot of it's actually the team developed a lot of the, the team people that have stuck with me for the last few years and grown with it and grown with me. And I have a lot of respect for them and I owe them a lot. And I think I'm most proud of building this team. And I'm also proud of developing this project from a, a, a ridiculous vision into something that is achieving its, its goals. I mean, all of that, I think, is yeah, it takes a moment. You have to actually sit down and think, actually, what it's achieved. And I'm very proud of it. I think the people are the, are the main thing. The people and the connections you make are probably the most important, really. I think, you know, compassion fatigue is, is difficult. It's not just compassion fatigue. It is exhausting. Going out on these trips at various points, you're going out there to achieve an objective in a short amount of time. And so they are fundamentally exhausting. And the, the truth is, I don't often manage them that well. When I go out there, I'm very much, this is, we're going to do A, B, C, D, well, let's get going. And I, I make all the connections, I make, get the work done. And then often by the time I'm home, I'm, um, as, as a lot of people back here notice, I kind of go through a little bit of a, a breathing space before being able to set up and, and get going again. I think balance is critical. And I've tried very many different means over the last few years of how best to balance it. Now it's much easier because the program is being run without on the ground. It's only been a year now. So going out there, I'm not actually uh, tremendously clinical, which is quite good. And I can get, and it's being rather than having the whole program sort of feeling as though I've got to get it moving. I've, it's now running completely with the skills of the, the members there and their, their hard work. So I can uh, take some time to relax when I'm out there too. But balance is something that I'll consistently have to do my best at. Right? That's something that I've never really found the key to. Are there any sort of habits or routines that help you find that balance or spark up, you know, positivity, energy, enthusiasm if you're at a low ebb? Yeah, I, I try my best to basically get up early, even on the weekends, to be honest, and just get out. I'm a big fan of time to recuperate. It's time on my own as well. So I, when I find those moments, even if it's early in the morning, I go off and, and do it. I'll get up early and, and go for a walk on my own, go and grab a coffee and sit there and, and read. And that, that I find is really crucial time. And um, I, various other points I do try and, and go out on expeditions or things when I'm out in the islands, for example, to um, 
may go diving and think, okay, at least one of these weekends I'm going to book it in. And when I go out there, I'll, I'll try and make a plan for the whole time on day one. So at least I can better, um, what's the word, have a steady trip rather than trying to achieve everything quickly. I know actually if I make a plan for that entire uh, month or six weeks I'm there, then then I know that I don't have to run around, you know, uh, day two. Pace yourself over the time and, and, you know, you get tied in with the excitement and the emotions and the, the desire to get going and, and sometimes you don't always need to do that. And so I do write down and make sure I know what I need to achieve over this period of time ahead of it. You mentioned um, reading there. Have there been any books that have been particularly influential in your either journey as a conservationist or as a leader? To be honest, a lot of my, a lot of when I read books, it's more a form of escapism in the honest truth of something to just separate from what I've got ahead of me. And so I do, in terms of listening to to people, podcasts are the main thing. That's how I learn such, you know, such as these. I learn about people. And I find a, l- a very much easier way. I, I struggle to connect sometimes with individuals. Reading are much personal touches such as podcasts, listen to them, understanding their tone and their language and how they utilize it, I think is so much more powerful for me. So reading, I often, I'm, I'm a historical nut and, and a big Tolkien fan. So a lot of those sort of topics come, uh, come out when I bring a book with me. Uh, so so it is completely different separate from life separate from work and I think that's kind of actually really important for me because um, it just uh, splits you off from what you need to do and what you need to try and drive forward and stops you still for a bit I think that is the just looking to see if I can see it the, the oldest book on my bookshelf is there's actually there's two the oldest is all creatures great and small just to be a dreadful walking veterinary <laughs> cliche for a second but it's true the second oldest is Lord of the Rings, and both the Wonderful. pages are all all orange. They're like there is there is orange <laughs> as a terracotta. The sun bleat. I'll get Lord of the Rings out, and certainly every ten years, if not every five, I'll I'll reread that because it's just such. There's so oh, much it, it, you oh, don't get. Absolutely, it's such a metaphor of life, isn't it? It's, it's wonderful. You know, I mean, I could go into talking myself in many different ways, but. <laughs> There's another podcast. There's so many different podcasts to do, really, aren't there? There's, I'm sure. I'm sure there's plenty of people do <laughs> do talking and do it much better than I would. So, reading for escapism, I like it. So, what would you change if you could change anything about veterinary medicine? Is there one thing you change more than anything else? Why would you change it? It's hard to say change it or necessarily just bring it into more of a focus. I think is is uh, international work. Uh, fundamentally i think i learned more in a year abroad not a lot but in terms of my growth than i did elsewhere and and that's for multiple reasons that's as a person not just as a professional i think you know our, our education and our bit and our practice here are phenomenal i think encouraging young professionals abroad even for a short amount of time uh, you know two four six weeks i think is so powerful to their growth as a professional as well because your ability to empathize with how things function in other parts of the world, understand and see cases and actually manage cases where you do not have the diagnostics, you do not have the materials or, or any of that equipment is, and, and you're relying entirely on your intuition, um, makes you a better vet. I remember for three years, I was relying heavily on machines and uh, rightfully so, because that is how our profession has evolved. 
but then going out into these, this environment and having to go back to almost my uni days of thinking, okay, what's step one? How do I progress if I don't have, you know, if I don't have this available, what is, how do I do it? I mean, I was going back even just doing your analysis and things like that. You know, a lot of our, we become dissociated from and a lot of our, you know, amazing uh, support team um, do a lot of that now. And I think just, just get into these environments, I think is so important. So I really want to make that more of a focus if I can. I will encourage students as well to come out and do this because I think um, they'll get a lot out of it. What was the best piece of advice you ever received? The biggest one for me as, as an individual is that you are in no hurry. And that really rung true to me because I, you know, for a lot of my early career, I have been, you know, very ambitious with what I wanted to achieve. Two, in certain scenarios at the not at the benefit of myself and I think that was a very powerful thing and that's kind of where I've mentioned this is having that ability to structure out a period of time and pace yourself and not have to have everything in the forefront now and I think um, I think that was really important to me realizing that you aren't in any hurry to achieve this and you don't need to achieve it now that feels really powerful particularly at a time where perhaps expectations of how quickly we should be able to accomplish something or be good at something or ought to have something or you know have been fueled by the immediacy of our society now whether it's fast food or fast news or fast communication everything's fast now but much in life that is desirable in fact almost everything that you would pay a big price for in the art world None of it was fast. It's all, it's all something that was either grown slowly or built slowly or created slowly. Skills are like that. Some of the most important things as we get older that we tend to not value in the immediacy is relationships with people, uh, friends, family, uh, relationships. And the only way that they develop is in time. You know, you can't force a friendship. You can't force anything, you know. And, and that's kind of where a lot of I, uh, you know, I took the appreciation of this off is that, you know, anything of true value doesn't come now you have to consistently check yourself i mean that is the part of, that's the human condition isn't it just consistently reminding yourself that uh, sit back and let things pan out i was going to ask you if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation what would that advice of you know, take yourself aside when nobody's looking go oi you take this with you would that be different to what you just said no no, it would be a fundamentally the same thing. I think, I mean, I could have given myself other advice as well, but I think in terms of my character and my route was very much tailored down to, I, there's so much I want to, want to do, even at the expense of other things, I want to do it. And I'm very headstrong in that manner as I will stick my head in and get it done, even if I have to figure it out later. And, and I will stick with it until it is achieved. You know, I will never give up on it. And that has pros and that has cons and understanding myself as an individual has been the most important part of this period of my 20s and now about into my 30s and that's why just don't hurry was such a you know you're in no hurry was just a, a fundamentally important thing that I sh you know you don't learn until you're forced to learn it if you could send out a an insta post or a story or something and it could light up on everybody's phone around the veterinary world, what would you say? What message would you give our colleagues in the wider vet world? A lot of it is, to be honest, is you're doing absolutely fine doing exactly what you're doing right there, right now. 
I think there's so much. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of one of the most powerful is, is we get so insular in our mindset, I think, in, in the veterinary profession that we forget or we look outside or we forget to look outside of it. And and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves down to the individual case up to a project that falls flat. You know, we put so much pressure on ourselves. And I think just having someone else tell you, look, you've done your best with that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't define you. Uh, you're not defined mm-hmm. by a single error. Uh, you know, and keep going. You're doing grand. I think that is the most important thing. I think it's a very topical area of conversation in our profession at the moment as well. And that's, you know, if I could be more involved in that, I'd love to be. But I think it's still a very much critical to each other. I almost think that our, we are defined by our sequence of failures because they're all the stops on the way to what what eventually becomes some form of success, whatever that means to an individual. Absolutely. I think that's an equal one to take out of it. I think um, it's how you define a failure at the end of the day, isn't it? Ah, yes. You know, and and how much pressure you put on that failure. You know, I think with myself, I had with this Galapagos project as well, I'm so proud of it and it's it's grown and it's going to continue to grow. But, you know, I, I stuck a lot of my identity into making this work. And that was a really unhealthy way to do with that. And it was a short period of time I had that. I was self-funding it. I wanted it to work. I felt like it couldn't give up on it. But if it failed, it's not the end of the world. You know, it wouldn't have defined me. But there is that mindset in there when you're immersed in that environment that this is so powerful. And I think we'll find a lot of my key colleagues doing exactly the same thing, is feeling very much like that. And I think that's something that we need to keep patting each other on the back and saying, doesn't you know, it doesn't. So as we sort of wrap up, is there anything we've not spoken about that's important to you that you would like to share with the audience? I mean, we've spoken about very topical subjects here that necessarily aren't all, uh, are very real and very important. But so, you know, I want to, I want to stick with uh, probably with the positives at the end of the day. And, and, you know, I really want to try and get anybody who is willing to get into conservation or not sure how to do it, who really, wants to do international work and doesn't know where to start and has that passion and that driving passion to really just get in touch. And I, you know, and, and I can't promise anything on my end, but I, I really love cultivating that because I had somebody who cultivated mine and if they have that and they have that drive, I mean, they can make it work and they can really persevere with it. And, and that sort of attitude I really love. And so I really encourage people not to give up on it. Even if they don't contact me, that's absolutely fine as well. But just to not give up on once you have that passion, just keep going. Uh, it'll get there. And most important uh, thing is don't do it on your own if you don't have to. Love it. That was, I heard an invitation to be mentored there. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to be careful what uh, you wish for. We've we got to edit some of that. I'd be willing to. I mean, I can't, I, I can't be very... Uh, <laughs> one at a time maybe if we're lucky but I, I just love that being able to help and cultivate where I can because I think um, it's so inspirational people who have that drive and that passion and I love hearing about them and what they want to do as well and, and there's so much potential and there's so much to do uh, we've got to keep giving each other that hand up where we can if, if it's relevant in our field oh, you know, let's give the hand up and, and get going we've got so much work to start achieving we come full circle to maybe one of the places we start which was the start of a journey and the networks that help you get there. And I can't imagine 
having a, a better mentor if I were going into a field or wanted to explore, even if it was a touch point to connect to somebody else. So what a generous offer. And Ben, how generous you've been with your time today as well. Great to finally get this podcast uh, episode recorded. Super fascinating. I'm no less fanboying or having you know job envy for your, your work in life. The community conservation and coast what a terrific threesome to be playing with in your career. If you want to follow Ben, then it's uh, B-O-V-H-O-W-I-T-T. So it's at Bovhowit, and that's on Instagram. Where else can people get in touch with you? Where's your favorite contact location? Definitely give Ben a follow. Yeah, contact uh, would be email is best, which is uh, ben at wvs.org.uk. That's the best one if everyone's getting any queries. Um, but also, you know, keep an eye out on our WVS channels and Galapagos Animal Doctors channels. There's some awesome stuff happening into next year and as well as some big campaigns. So uh, we'd love more volunteers to join. We've got a huge one in Cambodia in May. So if people are willing to uh, touch base with WVS, please do. We're doing 100,000 animals vaccines against rabies in 10 days. Biggest campaign I think WS wow. has done to date in that area. So people, volunteers want to join, come join. I'll be out there. All of our team, WS, will be out there. It'll be a really good laugh and uh, really, really impactful work. So uh, keep up to uh, eye on those channels and hopefully you can join us on one of our big next ventures. All right. So that Instagram account is at WVS Charity. And for Galapagos Animal Doctors, it's at Galapagos Animal doctors ben thank you so much for your time today really glad we got the chance to connect whilst you're in the country and safe travels when you're out there my friend thanks i really enjoyed it really really enjoyed it So that is it for another episode of Blunt Dissection. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did, then please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or send this episode as a link to somebody you think would benefit or enjoy the show. One last shout out to Ben. If you want to support the work that he's doing, the web address is pananimalia.org. P-A-N-A-N-I-M-A-L-I-A.org. Where you can learn all about it and if you're feeling generous, donate a small amount. Just £20 could get one cat health checked, spayed and treated for both worms and fleas, doing a lot to protect the local ecosystem. Until next time, from all of us here at Vetex International, be safe, be well and be happy.